Welcome to The Compass, the weekly podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our series called From Rags to Riches, taken from the pages of the Letter to the Ephesians. Do you live in Northwest Arkansas and need a church home? Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville. Now, if you have any questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, let me encourage you to reach out. You can contact us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is again sharing from Ephesians. He is sharing a message from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, entitled, Why We Need a Savior. Let's listen together. Why we need a Savior. We don't just need a teacher. We don't just need a healer. We don't just need a guide for life. Jesus is not an accessory to make your life prettier, to make your life wealthier, to make your life more comfortable, or to make your life better in any way. He is a Savior, and more than healing, and more than anything else Christ can give to us, we need desperately a Savior, and that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. Now, before we read our text, I want to kind of give you a picture that you can uh, maybe help see uh, this chapter of God's Word, especially uh, the first, oh, seven or eleven verses or so of this chapter. In central California, there is the tallest peak in all of the continental United States. It's Mount Whitney. Maybe some of you have been there, you've seen Mount Whitney. Perhaps you've even climbed to the top of Mount Whitney. It stands 14,495 feet above sea level. It is more than five times higher than the highest point in all the state of Arkansas. Now, Arkansas is still prettier, and it's still a better place to live. It's just not as high, all right? Mount Whitney, 14,495 feet above sea level rarefied crystal clear air, always cool breezes, turquoise lakes that you can look down upon. Vista gives way to vista in every direction as far as you can see. From atop Mount Whitney, you are literally looking down on all 48 states of the continental United States. Now, interestingly enough, Only 80 miles away to the southeast is Death Valley. Death Valley is the lowest spot in the United States. It's 280 feet below sea level. It is not the coolest place in California. It is the hottest place in the entire country. In fact, they have the hottest Uh, recorded temperature ever in our history at 134 degrees in the shade if you can find it. 
But as they say, it's a dry heat, so it's not so bad. Right? 134 degrees of dry heat sometimes would sure beat 95 degrees and 95% humidity that we have here in Arkansas. Well, one place, Mount Whitney, is the top of the world for the continental U.S. The other place is the bottom of the world in the United States. From Mount Whitney, you look down on all of life. From Death Valley, all you can do is to look up to the rest of the world. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, we have a picture of that very thing I've been talking about. We have a Mount Whitney portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. That would be found in verses 4 through 7. But we also have a death valley described for us in Ephesians chapter 2, and that will be our text today. The Lord is working through the Apostle Paul, giving him these words to give us a contrast. A contrast between death and life. A contrast between hell and heaven. A contrast that leads us from bondage to freedom. This is too great a passage to try to squeeze into one message. So today, we're going to view uh, the scene from Death Valley. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a dim picture, is it not? We give thanks to God for it because it's necessary so that we would understand why we are in such desperation to know a personal Savior. And we thank God even for the bad news of this Death Valley description. Why is it that we need a Savior? We need a Savior not just because we have a disease, not just because we have some dysfunctions, but we need a Savior because we are dead by reason of our trespasses and our sins. I want to share with you three thoughts from this passage about sin, about the problem we all have. First of all, sin... Paul says is universal and it is absolute. Every single individual here is described in this passage. Though it was written some 2,000 years before you were born, Paul knew your story. Why? Because God knew your story and God told Paul about it. Paul is describing us in this passage. 
And he is telling us that sin, our sin, my sin problem is universal and it is absolute. Notice he said in verse 1, and you, the first two words, who is the you that he's speaking to here? Well, it's the Ephesian believers, right? The Christians in Ephesus and around that area that had heard the gospel and had become Christians that had been saved. But here's the rub. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And at this particular point, there was still a lot of question in people's minds whether or not Gentiles could be saved, could have the Holy Spirit, could be born again, just like the Jews were in Jerusalem and Antioch and where all of this message began. In fact, not only was there still some question about that and doubt about that, but there were some people known as Judaizers that were following the Apostle Paul and the other apostles around, and wherever they preached and Gentiles got saved and churches were started, these Judaizers were coming along behind and confusing these brand new Gentile Christians with a message basically saying, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. The whole story is, is that you need to convert to Judaism in order to be true Christians, in order to really be a part of the body of Christ, the church of the living God. You've got to submit to circumcision. You've got to uh, renounce any other, uh, any other uh, beliefs and ideas which they already had stepped away from their paganism in repentance and faith in Christ, but now it was, let's add some more laws to this message and make these people Jews. So these people were wondering. So when Paul says, and you, he's speaking to Gentile people, the Ephesian believers. Sin is universal for all Gentiles. But look down to verse 3. In verse 3 he says, among whom we all once lived. Who is the we here? The we is Jewish people like Paul. He's saying not only were you dead in your trespasses and sins as Gentiles, but we all as Jews, me, Peter, Barnabas, the rest of the apostles, the rest of the Jewish church, we had the same sin problem that you have. We, too, were in our sins. In fact, he gets to the very end of verse 3, and he, he just be, is going to be sure no one is left out, like the rest of mankind. No exceptions. Everybody. Every human being, beginning with Adam, the first man, down to whoever will be the last person born into this world before the end of time, Every human being except Jesus Christ has this universal, this absolute sin problem. It has made all of us dead in our sins. Let me reaffirm that truth with some other verses. You might want to write these down if you'd like, at least the reference. They're not going to be on the screen. Romans 3 and 23, Paul there says, For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 53 and verse 6, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He is our sin bearer. He is our lamb of sacrifice. He is the lamb without blemish and spot. But none of the sins that were placed on him were his own. They belonged to you and they belonged to me. Proverbs chapter 14, 12, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, and chapter 16, verse 25 say exactly the same thing in exactly the same words. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The best way man can come up with only leads to death. Isaiah 64 and verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Three times that little word A-L-L, we all have become unclean. We are all, all of our righteous deeds, a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. Even Jesus, during his earthly ministry, made this statement very clear in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 when Jesus said to him, No one is good except God alone. God and no other. If you remember in that story, that incident, a young man came up to Jesus and referred to him as good master. And Jesus answered with that strange statement. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Basically, he was turning it back to the young man and saying to him, If I am good, it's because I am God. And if I am not God, I am not good because no one is good except God. So he said to that rich young man, what do you think? Am I God or not? You see, you and I always compare people with ourselves or with one another. And so there are degrees of goodness and there are degrees of badness, if that's a word, but I believe you understand it. There's degrees of good and bad. But God doesn't grade us on the curve. He doesn't grade us in comparison to one another. He grades us in comparison to Jesus Christ. And in comparison to Jesus Christ, we all fall short of God's glory. We are all sinners. What is being described in these verses is known as the doctrine of total depravity. Have you heard those words? total depravity. It does not mean that we are as sinful as we can be because we can always commit some more sins, right? What it means is that sin has affected every aspect of our lives. That there's no corner of your soul, there's no corner of your mind, there's no corner of your heart, there's no corner of your life anywhere where you are innocent, where you are good, where you are righteous. But like leaven, as it's often called, a leavening agent, sin has permeated all of your life. And though you could always do more 
your evil deeds. Total depravity doesn't mean that you are as sinful as you could be. Listen to me now. It means that we are as lost as we possibly could be. No one here is as sinful as Adolf Hitler was. But everyone here, when we are without Christ, are just as lost as Adolf Hitler was. There's no degree of lostness. You're either lost or you're saved. You are still in your sins or you have been forgiven your sins because the sin bearer Christ carried your sins for you. The bottom line is, is that total depravity is how we come into this world and it's why this world is in such a depraved mess today and is in such a need of a Savior. I know what you're thinking and I've already touched on it but let me bear it through a little bit further. You're thinking, well now everything we do is not bad. Mankind, even apart from Christ, even an atheist can do some very good things. And you may be thinking, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. I'm here at church this morning. I try to live a good life. I try to be honest in all of my dealings. I try to be fair with others. I'm not, I don't give in to all kinds of degrading behaviors that make me look foolish and, and cause sin to take over my life. But this thing of trusting Christ, this thing of submitting my life to Him, this thing of confessing that I need Him as a Savior, that's a a little bit beyond me. I don't think I need that. I'm going to live the best life I can live, and I'm going to take my chances on the day of judgment. And we say, and we think, don't even lost people do good things? And the answer to that from Scripture is this. No deed, no matter how generous, no matter how sacrificial, no matter how others-centered it is. No deed, if done apart from faith in Christ, is a good deed, it is still a sinful deed. Here's what Scripture says, Romans 14, 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not come as a result of faith in Christ is sin. Again, no matter how noble, no matter how sacrificial, no matter how generous. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It is self-righteousness. It's man's effort to do good and God does not recognize it. Isaiah 64 and 6, a verse we've already uh, mentioned. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The King James says are filthy rags. Filthy rags. And if you could read that, and if you read that in the Hebrew language, it would be even more graphic than that. All good things we do apart from Christ is evil. It's still sinful. It means that the best things a person might do are sinful things if they do not flow from faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because we are spiritually dead, according to this passage. We are dead, and everything that flows from our deadness 
is worthless. Until we are made alive in Christ, in a Savior, with Christ as our Savior, nothing we do is spiritual. Everything is fleshly, comes from the flesh, and it is sinful. So sin is universal and absolute. We've got a big problem. Okay? Number two. Number two. Sin is terminal. Sin is terminal. You get the bad news from the great physician. For the wages of sin is what? It is death. Well, the reality is, spiritually, we are already dead. We are already dead apart from Christ. But sin will ultimately be the reason that we die also a physical death. The reason death is in this world. God didn't create death. God didn't plan death for mankind. He created Adam and Eve in perfection, in holiness, in sinlessness, and had they not rebelled against God and sinned, death would never have entered in. But once it entered in, the Bible says it passed upon all men. So let's kind of break that down and, and be sure we understand it because I believe here's the crux of the matter. These three verses teach us the full picture of what sin is and what it does to our lives. First of all, verse 1 tells us sin is our condition. You need to underline or circle or highlight the word dead. And you were dead in trespasses and in sins. This is where we live. We live in a state of spiritual death apart from Christ. It is our condition, dead, not dysfunctional, not diseased, not depressed, or any other word you can think of that begins with a D or any other letter. We are dead in our sins apart from Christ. We are not in the doghouse with God because of our sin. We're not in the doghouse. Listen to me. We're in the morgue lying dead on a slab. That's man without Christ. Yet we think somehow that what we just have is a little bit of God's disapproval. If I do some good things and smile at him and, and, and try to make up for it in some way, that he's going to be pacified like somebody else in life. But he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And all those things that we try to throw his way to make him happy, they don't work. We're in the morgue. This is how Paul spells it out in Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words, Romans 8, 69. I believe these may be on the screen, so you can probably read them for yourselves. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Beloved, I want to tell you something. If God didn't say anything about sin in all the Bible, but those three or four verses, that is enough. 
to set the mind on the flesh, on earthly things, on things that pertain to our lives and our bodies, that's death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Okay, well, I'll set my mind on the Spirit then so I can have life. Well, guess what? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it doesn't even have the ability. Listen to me now. This is why mankind cannot on his own or on her own make any decision for righteousness or faith in Christ unless God first of all works in their life. Why? Because by the very fact of our spiritual deadness we are hostile, we are enemies to God and the cross. We will not submit to God's law and he says right here we cannot not unless God begins to do a work first. A work of, of giving us the gift of repentance. Of giving us the gift of faith. Of beginning to renew and quicken and make alive our spirits. And as we do that, suddenly when we come under that kind of conviction and that gift of God is at work in our lives and in our hearts, for me it happened when I was nine years old, that quickening of God the Holy Spirit for the first time in my life caused me to want God and to want what God had to offer and to be willing to humble myself and to repent of my sins and to say, yes, I am a sinner. I would never have said that in my own flesh. I would have always tried to defend myself and so do you with all of our statements of self-righteousness. For those, he said in verse 8, who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what John Piper had to say about those verses. Listen to these words. In other words, until the Savior comes and makes us alive by His Spirit, we are simply in the flesh. That's verse 9. That is, we simply have the mind of the flesh, and the mind of the flesh is in rebellion against God. That's verse 7. It is so much in rebellion against God, in fact, that it cannot submit to God's law, verse 7, and it cannot please God, verse 8. Therefore, verse 6 says, the mind of the flesh is death. Spiritual death is the condition of being devoid of God's spirit and therefore being unable to submit ourselves to God or to please God. In other words... Without a Savior, everything we do is insubordination against God and displeasing to God. So, sin is our condition. It is a condition of death. It's where we live. Notice verse 2, sin is our conduct. It has affected our behavior, our choices, the way we live. You need to circle or mark or underline the word disobedience. So sin has caused us to be dead. Sin has caused us to be disobedient. Dead is where I live. Disobedient is what I do. Listen to what he says in verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Of disobedience. There's two reasons why we are disobedient mentioned in this verse. First of all, we are influenced by the powerful pressure of culture and society. We once walked following the course of this world. What is the course of this world? What is the influence of culture around us? Sin. Have you watched any commercials on TV lately? It's made to appeal to your flesh. I mean, even Burger King advertised that way. You deserve to have it what? Your way, not God's way. Your way. Exalt yourself. You're first. After all, you deserve a break today. All, everything appeals to the flesh. And not only that, listen, it's appealing to our senses. It is getting more bold and more bold and more bold every single day. The kind of advertising is out there to appeal to you and me. The kind of music that is out there for us to listen to. Did you know that radio stations with the songs and the lyrics they play every day, every single day radio stations violate what is the FCC laws for public communication. But it doesn't matter. Nobody cares anymore. All of society is so coarsened, is so sinful, even here where we live in the Bible Belt. What about the programming on TV? We regularly watch and find humor and entertainment about the very things that Jesus came to this earth to die for. And yet that sin, when written in such a creative way and acted out with such personalities on the screen, entertains us. This culture, we walked, we lived, we obeyed following the course of this world, the powerful pressure of culture and society. I want to say something to you who are parents. Well, I guess most of us here are parents. Right? For some of us, it's too late to make any difference. We've already made all of our choices. For those of you that still have children in your home or grandchildren under your influence, can I say something to you? The world has already targeted your child. The world has already targeted your children. They are in the crosshairs of this culture and in the crosshairs of Satan. And can I say to you that you can bring your child to church every single Sunday, every single Sunday school, every single worship service, and every single prayer meeting. And by the way, you ought to do that. But you could do that and it still will not counterbalance the time that they have to spend in the world absorbing what the world wants to cram down their throat. Are you hearing me?
if some changes aren't made in the devotion of some parents and grandparents, not only in the Lord's church in general, but in this church in particular, you're going to continue to surrender your child to a world that wants to take them straight to hell. And if not to hell, then at least destroy their Christian influence to the degree that they will not have any influence for Christ in life. Parents, the spiritual training of your children is not someone else's responsibility. You cannot outsource that. The public school will not take it on themselves. The Christian school can't even do it. Your neighbors and your children's friends and their parents are not going to do it. If you don't do it, it's not going to be done. So who is shaping your child or your grandchild's life and thoughts? Is it the course of this world, culture and society? But I said there were two influences, right? Not only culture, but notice next, the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Who is the prince of the power of the air? That's the devil. The devil's goal is to destroy your life. And by the influence of culture and the influence of the evil one, the spirit that oftentimes is at work in us is the spirit of disobedience. This evil behavior is influenced by the powerful pressure of culture and society as well as the power of Satan. So we find that sin is our condition, it's death, it is our conduct, it is disobedience. Look at verse 3. Here's the rub. It is our character or our nature. And you can mark the word desires. Desires. In these three verses, there's a D word in each verse. Death, disobedience, desires. Okay? That is our condition, our conduct, and our character or our nature. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, by our very character, the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All right. This is going to be maybe a point we're going to make. If you'll give me just a few more minutes, we'll wind up. Uh, this is going to be maybe the hardest thing for you to accept and take today. But understand, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I believe we have it on the screen. This behavior of our evil desires within is behavior that is influenced because of a sin nature we have because of the fall. Capital F, the fall. One of the great movements of Scripture. Creation, fall. What is fall? God's perfect creation chose to rebel and disobeyed God and they experienced, Adam and Eve, a fall. They fell into sin. 
and sin became or came into the world because of them. This is what Romans 5.12 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, all mankind, women too, because all sinned. Now why are you a sinner? Why am I a sinner? Well, I want to say we are thrice sinners. We are threefold sinners. We are sinners because we inherited the sin of our common father, Adam. We inherited that sin. We are sin because, sinners because a nature has come into us now that our nature within. We talk oftentimes, you hear people say, well, I believe man is basically good. It's his circumstances that make him bad. No, it's not. Man is basically sin and evil. The Bible says children come forth from the womb speaking lies. That's sweet innocent little baby sweet is okay innocent is not did you know that children lie to you even before they can talk they do did your child when they were just infants did they sometimes cry and you thought, well, they must need a change of diaper. Something must be wrong. So you go to change the diaper. Nothing wrong on that end. Well, maybe they're just hungry. So you prepare them a bottle. And they don't take it. Oh, nothing wrong on that end. Why were they crying? Because they knew if they did, you'd come pick them up. And so they told you a lie to get your attention. They said something is really wrong here. You need to pay me some attention. And the second you pick them up, they're all goo-goo and happy and gurgling. They come forth from the womb speaking lies. Every human being is born a sinner. And then we commit our own sins. That's the thrice part. We inherit it. We come into this world of that nature and we commit it. Now, understand, as Paul is talking in this Romans 5, 12 verse, he is talking about the effect of original sin. Sin originated with Adam. It is inherited, though. Adam passed it along in his genes. It's a part of our DNA. And the second, another word that you don't hear often, is imputed sin. To impute something means to what? It means to attribute it. It means to put it on someone's account. It means to credit someone. So we inherited sin. That's the nature to do wrong and rebel against God. And we have imputed sin credited to our account. What is imputed sin? Imputed sin is the death the penalty that passes on to everyone because of Adam. Now, you can get mad at Adam and Eve if you want to. We can say, well, it's all their fault. You can argue that all day long, but see how long it holds up on the day of judgment when you have to explain your sinful life to God. 
It's not going to hold water. Adam started it. Eve started it. It's been passed along to every human being. We have inherited it. That's original sin. And it's been the guilt of it has been imputed to us. So the guilt is passed down from generation to generation that I am responsible for my sinful situation that started with Adam, but I'm responsible before God. Sin is terminal. Let me give you some good news before we close. Can I do that? Point number three. Sin doesn't have the final word. <laughs> Sin doesn't have the final word. Sin doesn't have the final word. It is universal and it's absolute. It is terminal. We all have a full case of it, all right? A full-blown case of sin. But sin doesn't have the final word. I want you to notice verse 4 begins our text next week, and it begins with two little three-letter words. And it is the story of the whole Bible. It is the gospel in six letters. Verse 4 begins with the words, but God. And you know what that says? That says, what I've just said to you is not all of the story. And it's not the final word of the story. In fact, he gave us a couple of hints back in verse 1 and back in verse 3, or verse 2 and verse 3. He said in verse 2, And you were, past tense, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, what? Once walked. He's speaking about their past. He's saying, it's not that way for you now, but it was. It was. And then in verse 3, verse three, among whom we all once lived, we all once were there in our sins. So I ask you today, because really there's only two places any of us can possibly be today. We can either be past tense, once in our sins, but instead now forgiven of our sins because Jesus the Lamb bore our sins and we put our faith and trust in Him. Or we are yet in our sins. Which is it for you? Which is it for you? I can't make that decision for you. I can't make that determination for you. You're either still in your sins or you are looking at your old life of sinful death in the rearview mirror. That was once me, and oh, yes, guess what? I still do sin. I still fight that struggle, and I'll probably commit sins even on the last day that I live. But that sin has all been forgiven, past, present, and future, because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are you today? Will you give your life to Christ this morning? Even as I pray, you can repent of your sins, you can confess your sin to God, you can tell Him you're sorry, you can surrender your life to Him, you can be changed for all eternity in a matter of moments. 
if you'll turn away, not just confess, but turn away from your sins and turn your life to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the life and the blessings of life we have because of him. Thank you that he is our sin bearer, that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world to save us from our sins, our sin nature and the sins we commit. Father, thank you that we can stand knowing that we've been forgiven in your sight, that we are on our way to heaven, that we will never, ever be lost again. And I pray if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that has not experienced your forgiveness, that even today they'll make that decision to surrender their life to you, to repent and turn away from their sins, and to call upon you as their Savior and Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.